You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Okay, today we are joined by Dr. Jamie Wilcox. Jamie is an occupational therapist and lead clinician at Keck Medical Center at the University of Southern California. She specializes in pulmonary organ transplant and critical care rehabilitation. Her academic and clinical interests include occupational therapy interventions for patients living with acute and chronic lung diseases, post-intensive care syndrome, and early rehabilitation or mobilization for patients with severe critical illness. Jamie, thank you for being a recurring guest on the show now. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yes, and we do have a rule that once you become a recurring guest, that means you have to come on whenever we invite you. Is that all right with you? Can't wait. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and Jamie, since March of 2020, you've been on the front line of the COVID-19 pandemic, caring for patients during and after hospitalization for acute COVID-19 related illness. We discussed your work in the critical care setting in a joint interview um, with your colleague, Dr. John Margettis. But you've also been working in outpatient care. How common is it to receive outpatient referrals related to COVID-19? It's becoming more and more common as the year has moved forward. In the first few months, I guess in the first six months of 2020 and of the kind of global pandemic, the primary f- source of referrals for patients recovering from covid were coming from the hospitalist group at our health system for patients that were leaving the hospital to transition to home. We often had cared for them in the hospital setting, and we felt like they needed ongoing intervention, often remotely through telehealth platforms, because we couldn't get them set up uh, with home health services, particularly during our winter surge, uh, the reliability of our, our healthcare in-home health services just was so variable that it was a lot more feasible to just continue with the continuity of care Um, and having those patients that were being seen by myself or some of my other colleagues in the hospital have them follow up with me um, in conjunction with following up with a primary care provider um, through telehealth, through our health system. Nowadays, I'm getting quite a few referrals, though, as our institution has started up a COVID recovery clinic. So We've become kind of a specialty hub for an interprofessional care service as an outpatient center uh, where we're taking referrals from different community providers for patients dealing with persistent COVID symptoms. Um, This is often beyond, you know, six weeks and they are lasting. You know, some patients had their initial viral infection in April and they're still dealing with, with some of these long haul symptoms. So we're seeing them and really acting as a, as a central hub to be able to offer community referrals, referral to specialists, and really to start to gain some, some really consolidated experience amongst you know, social work, primary care physicians, family medicine, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy. There's a pulmonologist, kind of the Pulmonary Center for Advanced Lung Disease is really leading the charge. But it's not necessarily just patients with pulmonary manifestations. It's a lot of referral to neurology, psychiatry, uh, psychology, um, because patients are presenting with such diverse, nonspecific, wide-ranging symptoms. So we're getting quite a few referrals from that clinic now, and 
we have definitely had to ramp up our capacity to take care of patients. That's amazing that you were able to to kind of form this clinic and and become a, a hub for for people um, experiencing deficits due to COVID. Did you play any role in kind of um, creating this this new clinic? I I did. So I've been working with this team for a, a long time, and we we pivoted our our team's focus this year. Previously, we took care of patients. Um, with different types of advanced lung diseases, and it felt like the right team to pivot and uh, work with a network of providers across specialties. So I had pretty strong working relationships with the social worker, with the nurse practitioner, with the clinical outpatient nurses and the physicians. So it's there have definitely been new providers coming in, and I've had to it's kind of forced me to reach out to our our health system's other rehab sites and collaborate with them and work with a lot of our our clinicians doing um, more outpatient lifestyle management of chronic health conditions. So I've been collaborating with them and sharing experiences, sharing ex, um, kind of intervention strategies for managing these really persistent fatigue symptoms, persistent um, fluctuations in cognitive um, attention and cognitive performance that I think the fun part about this group of patients, though, is that we're really watching um, patients try and return to work and patients that are very high functioning, patients that are very relatable, um, a lot of healthcare workers that are trying to get back to work and guiding that decision making and helping people feel like they're not alone in that process of when it's time to just jump back in and take on jobs that are not just office jobs. Not, I'm not that those aren't demanding, but you know, to be an ICU nurse, to be to be um, a police officer, to be a firefighter, to be a delivery truck driver, driving massive, big trucks, carrying huge oxygen tanks, you know, how do you, how do you help people that have such high risk technical jobs that have small margin for error? How do you build their confidence and skills to, to get back to work Um, has been fun and has, has offered, you know, a lot of, a lot of work to be done. Yeah, it, it sounds like an amazing clinic and an amazing example of collaboration and providing a much needed service to your community um, during a pandemic and during a time when when they really need it. I know our, our topic of the interview is is we're going to go through a case of, of someone who came through this clinic. Um, but if, if listeners are interested in, in looking up or, or finding more information about this clinic, how it started and the collaboration that goes on there, um, is there a website or something they could go to? Ah, that's a great question. Um, the clinic is being run through the Keck Medical Center of USC, and it has some pretty uh, rigid screening criteria because we're really trying to make sure our services are focused on patients that are dealing with the long hauler symptoms, um, as opposed to a lot of big medical centers are opening up post-acute or post-intensive care syndrome clinics and post-ICU clinics, which I think is an awesome opportunity and uh, a kind of a parallel model to what we're doing as we build a COVID recovery clinic. Um, so I think across the country, a lot of the big academic medical centers are, are opening these these kind of collaborative interprofessional clinic models, trying to build understanding and build collaboration and how we care for these persistent symptoms that are really biggest impact is their, their impact on function, right? It's so intricately related to function and to helping pay people live their lives as they return to the community um, and as the world slowly returns to a new normal. So 
you, you, I think you should see them popping up across the country as, as the model rolls out and as payment structures are, are built for this type of care. Absolutely. Well, thank you for giving us a sneak peek into, into your clinic and uh, your role um, there. It's really interesting to hear about. As I mentioned before, you contributed to an outpatient case study um, with Emily Frank to the AJOT special supplement on the COVID pandemic. Would you like to give Emily a shout out and, and could you briefly describe the process of, of developing this case application? Of course. Uh, Dr. Emily Frank is an assistant professor of occupational therapy at St. Augustine in Austin, Texas. And she and I worked together at Keck USC when she was a traveler. And uh, we have continued to collaborate. She was trained in Chicago and we worked really closely together for over a year while she was in Los Angeles. And we've stayed in touch and it's been really fun to continue collaborating through this pandemic as she's worked in the classroom, working with students and helping coach them with remote learning and trying to come up with interesting simulations for for clinical training of students and helping students as they come back to the classroom. And a lot of them have have had COVID and needed accommodations uh, for dealing with some of these long haul symptoms, as well as she's been working in the clinics in Austin. Um, And then I had been seeing patients in Los Angeles, and so it was a really good opportunity for us to put our heads together and present this case report and the interventions we've been providing to to patients with with these long-haul symptoms. Um, So it's been fun to work together. We have written the case report on on one of my patients, um, but she's been doing a lot of of the same work, and she's been really very helpful in um, putting words to the interventions um, that we so often provide but never really have to describe. Well, thank you both for your work and for sharing this case. Um, I know I'm excited to to learn about it, and I think it's going to be helpful for uh, practitioners and, and members of AOTA all over. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field. Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description. And support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. And to kind of dive right into it, what are the long-haul symptoms of COVID and, and how do you first begin to address them? So it starts with a pretty general overview. I get a referral from the clinic or the provider re- receives a referral from the clinic that says, you know, post-COVID syndrome. And um, there are slowly some some different uh, billing codes that are being, you know, diagnostic codes that are being put out to capture this, this area of clinic, this clinical syndrome. But um, it is a wide range of symptoms. And I think the coolest part about what we know about these symptoms is it's actually been tracked and collected by a lot of patients. So it's a lot of patient-driven research. So in the beginning of the pandemic, we had a lot of healthcare providers, researchers across the globe that contracted COVID-19, and a lot of them have continued to experience these long-haul symptoms for months now. And so what happened is Globally, they uh, there was a consortium of patients that got together and they started. They created a web-based survey to assess people's symptoms, 
and uh, track them over time. And they they got an IRB th- uh, through one of the universities in London, and they started to uh, collect and analyze this data in a really formalized way. Um, and so there's a publication that's that's coming out that's preprint and pre peer review right now, but. Davis et al. um, analyzed the data in December of 2020, and it's been really interesting to just look at that data as it's gone through the pre-press and pre-print process, just to kind of inform our practice about what are the most common things people are experiencing. And a lot of people are experiencing more than just one symptom. It's often a a mixed bag of of multiple of these symptoms, but the, the top 11 are, you know, 98% of respondents are reporting fatigue, sensory motor symptoms, 91% of people, post-exertional malaise. So after somebody does some sort of bout of exercise, that's probably more intense than something they've tried, you know, in the last few weeks. So a big exertion bout can cause, you know, a few days later, people experience a kind of a a spike in their fatigue symptoms and just uh, generalized body aches and exhaustion to where they're not able to get out of bed. So you know, sometimes we, we hear people getting counseling to work, just kind of push yourself through it, exercise, exercise, but actually overexertion can cause a recurrence of symptoms or almost like a flare of symptoms. Um, a lot of people responding or talking about brain fog right now. So you see a lot of, a lot of newspaper headlines talking about brain fog or cognitive dysfunction, which is really nonspecific. And people will tell me it's a lot about just like things that they previously took for granted, you know, writing an email real quick. Uh, They'll send it and they'll go back and read it and be like, oh, I can't believe I just wrote that. That doesn't make any sense. Or they'll forget what they were writing midway through the email. So a lot of attention, concentration, uh, um, ability to do the higher functioning parts of every day, as well as uh, persistent, you know, sleep, insomnia, sleep symptoms, shortness of breath, headaches, body aches, dizziness, palpitations, it's it's across the board. It is very much um, still being investigated. And there are subgroups within the long haulers population, some people experiencing more autonomic dysfunction, others experiencing just more of this constant pervasive fatigue, and others just um, dealing with kind of this tachycardia, breathlessness, some dealing with desaturation still. Um, So it's really a mixed bag and it takes a very thorough clinical assessment because until you've ruled out and you've really reviewed the diagnostic tests that, that say the patient's medical condition is otherwise, you know, there's no new diagnosis causing the shortness of breath or there's no um, additional comorbidity that uh, to blame for the symptoms. You've got to make sure that you've ruled out all the other possibilities before you start to offer kind of a self-management approach to care. Thank you so much for giving us that overview. This came up in our interview with John where the virus is still so novel that it's tough to find evidence uh, to base your practice and intervention on. And really you've had to turn to sources outside of the field of occupational therapy and and the medical field uh, in in general to find interventions and evidence on on how to, to best treat patients who present with this. So thank you very much for giving us that kind of introduction to it. And that I've never heard of patient-driven research before, but that article sounds like it's going to be extremely interesting and helpful. Uh, could you introduce us to, um, to this case study? How did your patient present to you in the outpatient clinic? So to dive into Brenda's case, we've named her Brenda. 
uh, as kind of her pseudonym to protect her identity. But Brenda was a patient who had actually a had a generally mild case of acute COVID infection to where she was able to stay at home. Um, and that's actually generally the the common presentation of patients with, with post-COVID is they didn't have very severe acute COVID infections. They you know, generally managed at home. They had a fever. They had the very much common experience and they were very sick, but didn't need hospitalization um, or deal with the complexities of, you know, that we discussed in the critical care episode. Um, Brenda is a 32-year-old Hispanic female. Uh, she lives in Los Angeles, and uh, she lives in a multi-generational household. So she lives with her mom and dad, her aunt, her younger sister, and her younger sister's two sons, so her two nephews. Um, and she's a registered nurse. She is a cardiac surgery intensive care unit nurse at a community hospital. And she's really passionate about her job. She's fun to work with because uh, we work in very similar environments. Um, I'm very familiar with the day-to-day kind of workflow of an ICU nurse, and I know how demanding it is because I I watch them all day. Um, They work 12-hour shifts, three days a week, uh, back-to-back days. Um, It is, you're up, you know, at five, you're in by 6.30. It's a grueling job. And you're physically asked to, you know, you're turning patients, you're mobilizing patients, you're, it's a lot of dynamic movement, and it's a lot of cognitively demanding tasks in a very busy environment. You've got to be used to beeping monitors, you're calculating drips, you're, you know, monitoring your patient's behaviors and vital signs, you're dealing with family members, physicians. She has a very demanding job, and she's really good at it. So just in knowing how and having so much respect for what Brenda does in her in her profession made this case particularly interesting for me. Um, and she had her COVID infection and her whole family got COVID. Uh, her sister worked at a local restaurant and, and got it first. And eventually Brenda, her sister, her aunt, mom and dad were all sick. During that period of time, Brenda, Brenda's infection was mild, but you know, she suffered from a lot of fatigue, weight loss, was barely eating, short of breath. But Brenda really didn't pay attention to how she felt while she had COVID because she was so busy taking care of her parents. So her parents were quite ill. But because Brenda has such great relationships with her family's primary care physicians, she was able to work with them and say, hey, I can't let my family get admitted to the hospital. Let me do everything I can to take care of them at home. So her friends brought her some supplies. She was able to kind of start her own little mini hospital at home. Her parents were on IV fluids. Her Their family physician was checking in. Uh, they were able to get IV antibiotics to take care of at home with the help of a local home health vendor. And she really got supplemental oxygen at home for her parents. She was, a, she was her parents' bedside nurse while they were really sick. Um, she monitored them really carefully. And she was even able to get them over to the outpatient infusion clinic that had been set up at the local hospital in outdoor tents to get them infusions of the convalescent plasma therapy. So she worked her butt off to keep her family as safe as possible to keep them from going into the hospital. Eventually, actually, Brenda's aunt had to be admitted and ended up um, passing away after acute respiratory distress syndrome, being on a ventilator for four weeks. And that was really hard for her um, to experience, knowing that, you know, she had done her best to keep her aunt and her parents at home and Although it was really successful for her parents, her aunt eventually passed away and and they weren't able to be at the bedside. So that that definitely set the context for Brenda coming in and 
not necessarily having much insight into how her symptoms were impacting her recovery and how COVID had really impacted her personal life um, and personal independence because she had been so invested in taking care of her family for so many weeks. So eight weeks after her infection and after her family had had kind of gone through this enormous change um, at home, she started to settle down and be able to kind of get back to life and realized how mentally and physically exhausted she was. So as Brenda started to seek out medical care because she wanted to go back to work, but she honestly was terrified about making a mistake. She knew her body wasn't back to normal and she knew she was spending a ton more time in bed, but it was really inconsistent. She just felt like, you know, she, as a healthcare provider, why can't I get a hold of this? Why can't I feel okay again? She was watching her parents slowly get better and she just couldn't find any consistency between her weeks. She'd have a few good days and then a few really, really bad days. Um, And she just couldn't seem to get back to where she wanted to be. By the time I met Brenda, she um, had been referred from from her primary care physician. And she had gone through just a general workup to make sure there was no lingering disease related to the COVID or, you know, comorbidity related to complications of COVID, as well as to make sure that she didn't have any new diagnoses. So causing her symptoms, right? And so, you know, her, her laboratory tests were, were normal, her, her scans of her lungs and her heart, um, her EKG, all of the different tests they put somebody through, pulmonary, pulmonary function tests, they were all nonspecific. Uh, she had some tachycardia, so her heart rate was elevated, and it became much more elevated when she'd move around. But other than that, you know, everything was generally normal. And so that's where she got referred to come and work with me in occup- outpatient occupational therapy to help her build some strategies for managing these symptoms and thinking about how do we get her back to work and in what capacity can she get back to work. Brenda, by the time she made it to me, she's, she had always been independent in her basic ADLs. Um, so she was able to take care of herself. She was able to walk around the house. She was able to walk around the community. She could do her laundry. She could drive. She was able to pay her bills you know, without errors as long as she double-checked her work. Um, she was aware that she needed to be mindful that, you know, she wasn't always going to get things right the first time. And she was okay with that. She was able to cope with that. Um, But she expressed having difficulty with her home management and especially things that required a little bit more endurance. So vacuuming, cleaning the bathroom, uh, cooking for her family. She wasn't able to engage in a normal um, daily yoga practice that she had been really loyal to for many years, um, just because her sleep routine and her fatigue was all over the place. Uh, She could never get herself to get up and exercise because she just was constantly tired. She was really focused on getting back to work because her work is really kind of central as, as all us healthcare providers seem to have this. Uh, We, we are our work, especially during a global pandemic. And she, you know, even when she was so sick, she was still so focused on doing her job, whether it was at work or at home. And so she wanted to get back into the ICU Um, But she was expressing feelings of brain fog, so low concentration and memory, some intermittent and inconsistent dyspnea. She also would have bouts of like palpitations in her chest that she felt like her heart was pounding. And she'd have moments of just dizziness where she'd get up too quick or she'd do something and she didn't really know exactly what would trigger it, but where she'd get really dizzy and that would be it. She'd have to stop what she was doing, call it a day, go rest for a few hours to kind of be able to move through the dizziness. 
Um, and then the fatigue that was just kind of ups and downs and all of this generally over eight weeks had really worn on her, especially as she reflected back on like, how was I superwoman taking care of my whole family, creating my living room into like a mini ICU? How was I such a superwoman? And now I can't seem to get myself out of bed. I can't seem to get through like a week's worth, a day's worth of tasks in a full week. Like what's, what's going on with me? How am I ever going to go back to work? It sounds like Brenda had such a, a long and difficult journey, um, but really was courageous through it all. Um, and I just wanted to say she sounds like like an amazing person and and great example. So thank you for kind of painting a picture for us of, of how she was presenting. Can you continue by sharing how you collaborated with her um, in, in setting goals for, for her treatment and how you prioritized, you know, what to include in intervention based off of your collaboration with her? Definitely. So we, so Brenda and I decided after her evaluation um, or during her evaluation that um, the beginning of her plan of care, we'd, we'd do our best to do in-person clinic-based sessions. So she'd come into the therapy clinic, you know, utili- utilizing the right PPE, that that was going to be the best thing to get her up and out of the house, give her a, an appointment to an, attend and build some consistency in her routine. But also, we wanted to be flexible in acknowledging that her fatigue may be a barrier to her adherence and being able to show up for appointments. And so to compensate for that, telehealth was really a safety net to make sure that I could see Brenda once a week. And even on bad days, as, a, as her clinician, I wanted to know what she looked like on bad days. I wanted to talk to her about what made it a bad day. And I wanted to be able to to offer that that element into our assessment and help her be able to manage on bad days. Because before telehealth, that was really when dealing with kind of these chronic autoimmune, chronic fatigue syndromes, um, it's really hard as a clinician not to know what your clients look like on their worst days. Um, you're really getting kind of a, a biased perception of them because you, they, to get into a clinic takes time, it takes energy, um, and it takes endurance. So I think telehealth really a blended kind of plan of care that allowed for remote and in-person visits was was really key for me to get a holistic picture of what Brenda looked like um, and just not kind of take her word for it, for what the bad days were. Absolutely. Can you tell us uh, or describe for us how you combine telehealth and in-person in, in your care in that clinic? How often are you seeing uh, Brenda via telehealth versus in-person in the clinic? So the first few sessions, Brenda did a great job, got herself in. Um, It wasn't till about week five where she had had a really rough week and she had had a bad weekend and she was just exhausted. And every time kind of this relapse happened, kind of set her into this spiral of just feeling really hopeless. And she was just, she had been working so hard and we had been making great progress. And so I think to have five good weeks of getting herself there the first week, she called and she kind of had forgotten that that was an option. And it was really nice to be able to just, you know, she, she called me, she called her clinic and I called her back just to see what was going on. Um, the, her appointment was the next day. And I said, well, why don't we do a zoom zoom session? And, you know, it can be shorter. Just don't have to, you don't have to get ready. You just put your camera on and we'll just, we'll just talk and we'll see how you're doing. I want to get some insight into how the week's going. So we have a USC has provided us with a HIPAA compliant Zoom version. So I send her an email with a Zoom link and she's pretty, you know, she's pretty tech savvy. So that that helps to have to not, um, you know, work through the technical complexities of things. But she logs on the Zoom link and sets her phone up so that I can see her. 
and hear her and the connection was good. And so we just did a session via telehealth. So a blended plan of care, I think, is often the most accommodating um, for someone dealing with symptoms that often limits um, attendance to outpatient therapy. I, I like that a lot. And so you prefer to have them in person, but if someone's feeling sick or, or unable to make it in, then that telehealth is an option. Definitely. And it gives you a window into kind of what their life at home is like. Uh, it gives you a chance to kind of meet family members because family members still haven't been invited back into our, our clinic spaces. Uh, patients generally have to come alone unless they need a caregiver present. Um, so it gave me a chance to see her family, see her parents in the background. You know, it's, uh, it gives you a window kind of into their life and their home environment that otherwise, you know, remains a mystery. But otherwise, I saw Brenda once a week for our plan of care was written for 12 weeks. And the final end of our plan of care was actually primarily wrapped up on telehealth um, because she was back at work and it was too much for her to get into the clinic when she was going to work. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, um, not to give away the ending or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I couldn't help myself. Too excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, and, and I'm really interested to hear how Brenda made that much improvement. Um, after you completed that initial evaluation, what was going on in, in your mind in terms of safety, risks, and precautions? Uh, what were you really thinking were the most um, important considerations to have in mind when working with Brenda? So our initial evaluation and throughout every reass every every time I see a patient, it kind of feels like there are there are moments of in like you're re you're constantly reassessing, right? You're constantly checking in, making sure that you don't need to modify treatment plans or interventions of the day, right? So we were always really carefully watching Brenda's heart rate and her heart rate response at rest and with the activity. We were constantly, you know, doing check-ins on her level of breathlessness, but also her oxygen saturations. Before we did any sort of exertion testing, we were always checking our blood pressure before and after to make sure we weren't going to, you know, stress her body too much, um, as well as anytime we did remote uh, telehealth sessions when, when I would have her do a little bit of activity for me on, on the remote telehealth platform. Uh, it helped having her be an ICU nurse, but with other patients as well, um, oftentimes patients own pulse, pulse oximeters now, which is great. Um, it's been a, a really awesome tool for people to have in their homes to watch not only their pulse rate, but their oxygen saturation so that they're able to give me that feedback and, and make sure that I'm not pushing them too hard or not pushing them enough, you know, helping them make more objective decisions about how their symptoms feel um, with that, with that element of feedback. Absolutely. And with these uh, considerations being made, um, what did a typical intervention look like for Brenda? What types of activities and occupations were you um, engaging in during treatment sessions? So the first big thing we wanted to kind of tackle in Brenda's care were getting a, a, an understanding. She was really frustrated by, she felt like it was just like super random. Like, why am I getting these dizziness spells? It's so random. She's an ICU nurse. She should. She felt like she should understand her body. Like she is very much aware of how um, the body systems work. She felt like, why can I not figure this out? There's no rhyme or reason to this. So I really wanted to help her try and figure out the mystery of why she kept having these very random onsets of dizziness, as well as breathlessness. So she could do exercise. And when she was, you know, doing certain types of exercise, endurance exercises, 
she generally could would be okay and she could manage the pace or the the in- intensity to control her breathlessness it was often when she would do things that were unexpected like cleaning the bathtub she got super dizzy cleaning the bathtub one day and it kind of knocked her down for the rest of the day she was just like why on earth can i not clean the bathtub but i can go on a mile hike every or mile walk every evening uh, with my family like why is why can i do one thing and not the other so really helping her learn to appreciate the task demands of what she was doing when she was dizzy and figuring out together well what were the what were the task demands that got her to the place where she was having these acute onsets so we started by checking some orthostatic vital signs to make sure there was not no like autonomic dysfunction as her body changed positions that was something she had already thought about she had tried it at home but of course i had to make her try it again I had her go from laying down to sitting up to standing, and then we checked her vitals in each position. I had her do those transitions slowly. I had her do them quickly. I was trying to reproduce the dizziness to see what were what were what would trigger it. And we ended up figuring out that anytime Brenda had to hold her breath to do something, and you would be surprised at how often we all hold our breath on a day, anytime she had to hold her breath, she would quickly become dizzy. And so that was the trigger, and it took us a little bit of time to figure that out. But once once we had figured out what was causing her to hold her breath, um, we could then help her start to recognize that pattern of performance inside of her activity routines. And then beyond that, help her be able to recognize it and then change the behavior. So learning how to recontrol her breath and be able to anticipate when she may do something that would cause her to hold her breath. So she could stop herself and build a new pattern of performance. That's such a great example of uh, problem solving and, and clinical reasoning in, in treatment um, and tailoring it to the needs of, of your patient. So how did you incorporate um, or I guess what kind of supports did you incorporate to help Brenda in monitoring her breath and, and to, to not become dizzy due to holding her breath? So as soon as we kind of figured out what it was and we started to practice changing the behavior, it was kind of like a light bulb went off. And I think that's why it's so fun to work with healthcare providers because they generally are very insightful of how the body works and they pick up, like she learned these techniques really quickly. And we, you know, the task specific training, it, the the intervention was really successful and it was, it was fun to watch how quickly she took it on the intervention and made it her own. Uh, So what I had her do is I started to just have her do a daily activity tracking log. So at the end of every night, I asked her to just start a little diary. I told her I wanted her to spend no more than three minutes on it. I wanted to, to scribble down a few things she did that day. And how many dizziness bouts she had when she first came to me, she was having over 10 dizziness spells in a week. And within the fourth, by the fourth week, we had really cut back her dizziness spells uh, to, you know, maybe one a day. Uh, I think there was a total of four in the first, in the third week. She integrated this quickly. And as soon as she got rolling with this, it, it really was a fast solution once she got the hang of it. Um, it was fun to watch her pick up this skill and make it her own. So as she started to do the little daily diary at the end of every day, she really took my prompts, which were very, I tried to make them as simple and to the point as possible to decrease the amount of um, effort it would take her and try and kind of optimize how adherent she'd be to it. 
she was almost too adherent to it. She turned it into like, she felt like she was doing her charting, like as a bedside nurse, you, you do charting at the end of every shift and you write about how your patient did that day and, you know, what any sort of incidents were, how you discuss things with family. And she felt like she was doing that for herself. She was, she was charting on her own day and charting on her own symptoms and the things she felt went well and what needed to happen the next day um, or what she could do better the next day. So um, that was really helpful. She was able to bring those, uh, that diary into our sessions each week. And we started to, I would facilitate just kind of her reflection on it, um, how her daily activities influenced her symptom management, but also how her symptoms influenced the things she did each day. So I think this is kind of the other piece of learning, teaching, you know, occupational therapy in providing self-management interventions um, for patients who are dealing with these chronic and sometimes new, new and chronic conditions. Um, it's really an occupation-based and centered approach to managing symptoms so that you start to understand not just how lifestyle choices impact, you know, your disease outcomes and how you feel, but also an appreciation for how your daily participation very much influences how you feel about yourself, your fatigue, your stress, and your mood, and, and really using um, daily occupations as, as a mechanism for, for enhancing symptom control and symptom, symptom management. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing those insights. Um, and that sounds so fun that, that Brenda really took to these supports and these interventions uh, so well and was excited about it doing her own charting that sounds she sounds like a a, a wonderful patient to have and i, I want to ask you jamie if someone is is trying to incorporate a, a similar type of, of lifestyle management intervention um but a, a patient may be struggling to to find that buy-in what kind of recommendations would you would you give to a practitioner to help them achieve um a, a positive outcome still the lower the effort i think the easier it is to get someone to do something so obviously finding finding a place in their routine that it's easy for them to jot down notes, right? So if somebody, oftentimes people are showing up with brain fog or they have not built insight into how the symptoms trend within their context of their day. So oftentimes having someone journal them or track them on a piece of paper for us helps. I think fitness watches, you know, the Apple watch or the Fitbit um, is another way of building kind of a, a trend over time. So that was something that Brenda liked to write down in her journal was what her average heart rate was for the day and how many minutes of exercise she got that day. So that really kind of was a nice objective measurement to include in her journal. So uh, sometimes kind of the wearable fitness devices to track those outcomes help. And then I think just asking really to the point questions that are easy prompts for someone to respond to. If, if patients aren't able to necessarily self-monitor for themselves or they have a hard time quantifying the symptoms, uh, sometimes caregivers are willing to, sometimes the buy-in from caregivers wanting to see their, their loved ones get better. Um, sometimes they have an, a unique perspective to offer. So, you know, how much the patient se seemed to, you know, how much energy did they perceive, they, did they perceive them to have that day? Um, getting the caregivers insights as well can help. Um, with that piece of it. Absolutely. Thank you for those recommendations. Jamie, what, what were some of your main takeaways in working with Brenda? What do you feel like you learned uh, from, from working with Brenda throughout her continuum of care? That's not the right phrase, but <laughs> do you That's get what okay. I'm trying to ask? I think, I think it was just having an appreciation for the fact that Brenda's like, if comparing Brenda's life to like, you know, a puzzle, she lost 
the part of her routine that was work. And she was a very structured, high functioning person, you know, to work. She, she lived a very fast paced, productive life and taking away that piece of structure that, that being a bedside nurse offered her, um, it controlled her sleep routines. It had for decades since, you know, you're, you're a night, you do night shift, then you do day shift. That, that transition of, of sleep routine for a nurse is, is, is crucial. And as soon as we took away the work piece of her routine and had to try and rebuild it without that piece of her, of her routine, it was very hard to find another way to build structure because that was the only thing that was, you know, that was the, the cherry on top of the pie. That was like the thing that made it for her. It was the reason she got up each day. And if she wasn't going to work, making herself get up that early um, and push through the fatigue, there really wasn't motivation to do that. And so we had to find, you know, we had to grade our way back to getting her to work and jumping back into the ICU for 12 hour shifts, back to back days, just wasn't feasible. And we weren't setting her up for success. I think thinking about going back to work, it's nerve wracking, especially in a high risk job, because it should be, you need to be able to to slowly reacclimate yourself into the environment and it takes time to reorient and process all of the information that's coming at you from so many different directions. So she started back slowly. Um, she started back and spent a few weeks working in the outpatient clinic. She wasn't thrilled about the idea, but it was the place it gave her enough of a safety net to know that she was working in a slower pace environment where she could sit down more. Uh, she had colleagues that she could ask for help that had a more a more available attention to help her. And it didn't feel like the end of the world if she needed to call out sick where she was letting down her team. And then from there, she was able to, you know, slowly get back into feeling confident, uh, building her endurance to be at work all day, building her attention. And then within, you know, a few weeks, think about jumping back into the ICU and taking on her, her typical roles as a bedside clinical nurse in the ICU. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing um, your clinical expertise and, and your experience with Brenda. It, it really sounds like having medical knowledge and clinical expertise is so important, but also combining that with the OT basics of client-centered care and, and finding your patients why and what motivates them and incorporating those into treatment. It's, it's so important to include both aspects there. Um, so thank you. I think that's a, a wonderful um, illustration of, of doing that in, in OT intervention. Definitely. It's, it's a fun thing to get to be able to bring to a, a medical model of care. You know, I work in a very, very much standard classic medical model and it's, it's fun to be able to bring in the elements of, you know, her mental health and feeling like herself again, some, especially a patient that very much operates from a perspective of there is no disease. My tests were normal. Why don't I feel normal? And trying to offer her that insight of, you know, you're not doing the things that make you feel like you. Um, so of course things aren't working right. Um, and helping her regain that she's still recovering and this is a process, but, um, it's, it's been really helpful to be able to kind of demonstrate, I think, to the OT community, how, how distinct we can make ourselves in, in a very traditional medical model of care. Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us about um, Brenda or this case in general, Jamie? Not that I can think of. Thanks so much for for talking me through it. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing. This is uh, so valuable. And I just have two more questions for you in conclusion. 
And that's if there are any resources that you would recommend to practitioners um, who'd like to learn more about working with patients who do have COVID-19. Yeah, I think AOTA has done a great job putting out a variety of different webinars um, across care environments um, for working with patients at different points across the trajectory of COVID-19 syndrome. Uh, There's a COVID-19 rapid guideline that was put out by the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, um, and it is on managing the long-term effects of COVID-19, and it's really a comprehensive look at how someone should be looked at diagnostically to make sure that there are not acute or unrelated comorbidities that need to be addressed from a medical management perspective. And then, you know, it, it very much outlines when referral to multidisciplinary rehabilitation should occur um, and names, you know, very specifically that occupational therapy is a service, you know, a specialist area of service that should be considered for patients that are still dealing with these prolonged symptoms that are generally nonspecific, but can be physical, mental, cognitive symptoms that are persistent and really impact function. So it's nice to see occupational therapy included in the rapid guideline and uh, named, you know, first on the list of the following specialist areas for referral. And I really hope that we start to see um, more referral to community-based outpatient clinics so that um, OT can contribute to the care of these patients and help them kind of get back to life. Absolutely. And that sounds like a wonderful resource. Not every day you see OT named first on the list of referral, referring specialists to uh, send your patients to. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love it. (laughs) And hopefully it becomes more of a a normal thing. I I think when providers, at least in my health system, when providers don't know what to do about a problem, but there is definitely consequences for the patient and the family, they've all generally learned to send them to us. Like if there's a problem you just don't know what to do about and you don't know who's going to figure it out, generally someone in the OT department's got an answer for it. We get our mixed bag of of interesting problems, I think, in our outpatient clinics. It's probably one of my favorite things to have lunchtime conversations about. And that's awesome that you've built that reputation uh, within your organization. We have a pretty clever group of, of OTs on on faculty. It's a good team to work with. Jamie, I just have one more question for you. It's our golden nugget segment. I know you shared one in the interview with John, but we're getting two from you if that's all right. That's okay. Um, I hope I have any goldens left. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll take a silver nugget if that's all you got. Too. Okay. But what is something you have learned during this pandemic that you would like all practitioners to know? I think when it relates to outpatient care, it has just reinforced how important functional performance is and how even in traditional medical models of care, when it, you know, we're managing really complex diseases and the complexities of intervention continue to get better, but more complicated for patients to manage at home. What they really care about is how they feel and what they can do every day. And when you've got a large group of the population that all of a sudden loses their independence and loses their functional capacity um, or loses some of it, helps me reappreciate how important functional performance is and the fact that that is what we do. Um, I don't think that this takes any sort of specialization. It just takes practice. It just takes repetition and really kind of keeping an open mind to listening to your patients and seeking out information from within OT and outside of OT to try and 
help our patients come up with solutions that work for them. But there is never going to be one blanket coverall solution for everyone. It's you know what works for your patients and what's going to get them where they need to be in the short or long term, whatever you know the timeline looks like. So it's given me an, a very much re-appreciation re for being an occupational therapist and what we contribute to the medical team. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us for all the work you're doing um, and for sharing your your research and, and everything that you've done with, with me and the listeners in AOTA. Thank you for having me. I'm sure they're going to be sick of hearing from me now. I'll take a break. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be off next year. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We'll, we'll, we'll circle back in 2022. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.